This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, but really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome to episode 276 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and I am so excited to bring to you this week's guest, Ryan Starling. Now, Ryan is a firefighter paramedic and a SWAT medic for San Bernardino County. He is a 511 tactical sponsored CrossFit athlete, and he also features in the reality TV show Live Rescue. And I think most importantly for this conversation, he was also the first responding tactical medic at the Inland Regional Center shooting that they had in 2015. So we cover a host of topics in this conversation. Before we get to the episode, as I always say, please take a moment, go to whichever podcast app you listen to this, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, tell me what you think about the show, and then most importantly, leave a rating. So a five-star rating, the more of those that accumulate, the more visible we are to people on planet Earth looking for a podcast like this. And then as I say as well, take your social media, word of mouth, email, carrier pigeon, and share these amazing episodes. Every single week, we have two incredible minds, and my goal is to get their knowledge, their stories to every ear hole on planet Earth that needs to hear it. And you guys are the key. The more you help me share, the bigger this project grows. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Ryan Starling. Enjoy. So Ryan, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. 
So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in Riverside, California. Brilliant. So I'd like to start at the very, very beginning. So were you born in Riverside? And if not, where were you born? Uh, yeah, I was born in Riverside, uh, born and raised here, and I've uh, been here my whole life. Awesome. All right. So um, family dynamic, what did your parents do and how many siblings? Uh, I have one sister uh, and my parents. Uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom and my dad uh, does uh, general engineering for a hospital. So he does all the, the maintenance for the hospital. Brilliant. All right. Um, so did you have any uh, law enforcement, fire, military in your extended family? No, not in my extended family at all. Um, I just was interested since I was a kid. I've had a little bit of military uh, with my grandfather, both my grandfathers, um, but uh, no law enforcement or fire. Right. Interesting. It was the same as me. I didn't either. Um, so as we're going to talk about, you are a pretty elite athlete these days. When you were <laughs> a young man, when you were in school age, were you a big sportsman then? Yeah, I started playing baseball when I was uh, four years old and played basketball, soccer, uh, kind of did all the sports, but I was always played baseball all the way through uh, competitively with travel ball. And then I ended up getting a uh, full baseball scholarship to Cal Baptist University and playing baseball in college. During <laughs> that time with your career aspirations, the fire department? Yes, 100%. Okay, so why um, if you didn't have the influence from anyone in the family? I just, I had a... A couple of uh, friends that did it, uh, their dads did it. So it really just interests me. And like all the way through from like elementary school, when they'd come to the school, um, we had a fire station uh, nearby. I'd get to walk by that and see it. And it just always drew, it just something drew me to it. And I just knew from the very beginning, I just wanted to do it. You saw them responding, the, the excitement of them, you know, the engine going by as a kid, that kind of stuff. It just always drew to me. And as more and more you got to meet and talk with them, it was what, I was doing now on a sports team, but now you get to help people and you continue to do that and face those challenges for the rest of your life. Absolutely. And it's interesting talking to a lot of the you know, people that be on the show that have come from the military or first responders, how there's an element of the team sport in what we do. And there's also an element of the individual sport in what we do. And it's a good combination of the two. hundred percent, hundred percent. Right. So then you talked about going to college. Did you go immediately from college into the fire academy? Um, so what I did is uh, I got my baseball scholarships. So I started at Cal Baptist. So I was kind of dabbled in a couple things to see what I wanted to do my bachelor's in as far as teaching. Uh, I ended up doing it in kinesiology. I even took some business classes. Um, and uh, what I did is during the summers, I took I started doing my uh, fire classes. So during summer breaks, I would take uh, I took my EMT and did that uh, a fast course, uh, which was eight weeks. So we'd just go like, I think, Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then I did uh, my fire 101 intro to fire science. I did the, one of my hazmat classes and I would just take those classes during the summer. And then I started doing volunteer uh, as a fireman uh, through Riverside County fire, the uh, Cal fire, they had a uh, volunteer program. So I started doing that on the days that I could just to get the experience and get in that during, uh, during the summers. And what was the defining moment where you decided it was time to pull the trigger and go to the Academy? Uh, I, Throughout their uh, Riverside Community College, where I went to uh, both the police academy, the fire academy, EMT school, paramedic school, they only had open enrollment day for two positions. The other positions you had to be sponsored by departments. So um, I wasn't sponsored by any department. So I had to like network and just I would go down, show my face. I would talk to who I needed to talk to. I just kept being persistent and to the point where they're like, OK, we get it. We get it. 
And uh, a friend called uh, um, one of the academy directors and helped me that way. I went and met with him. I went down there two or three times just showing up. Hey, I just want to see where it's at and just basically persistent. And I got one of the open enrollment spots. So there was uh, 36 spots in the academy and two of them were for open enrollment. I was able to get one of those spots. So I know how hard they were to come by at that time. And so I basically uh, had to make a decision with Cal Baptist and baseball in my senior year. And so I, uh, I took a leave of absence and chose my uh, my fire career from that point on. Brilliant. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been to departments where they've had over the last few years, um, non-cert hirings and then, you know, certified hirings. And of course, there are some great people in the non-cert hirings and vice versa. There's some terrible people in the cert. But I always notice that when someone has to work a full-time job and put themselves through school at nights and weekends, that there seem to on average be a, a more determination, more appreciation of the job when someone had had to, you know, take every single step themselves, pay their entire way. And, and like I said, pay their living while they were trying to go through school. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's just, it's in the person, uh, your determination. I think whether I did fire, whether I was business, whether I was a teacher, I think that's how I was raised by my family and my, my grandpa, my mom is just, Hey, you got to work for what you get and you'll appreciate it a lot more versus having it given to you. So how was the academy for you physically being an athlete all the way up to collegiate level? I came out number one, um, with the running, the PT, everything. Uh, I always enjoyed that stuff. I'm, I'm super competitive in nature. Um, everything I do, whether we're, you know, playing games with the kids or whatever, we're just, we always compete and it just gives you that sense of like, Hey, I, I to strive to be the best. And that's what I always teach my kids. It's okay to not be the best, but you always want to strive to be the best. So the PT was, wasn't, wasn't that hard. I was ready. I was prepared. Um, I've always worked out my whole life. So it wasn't like I had to worry about that stuff. And I think that's the big point that I try to get across to people. That's the last thing you want to worry about being a fireman or a police officer, whether I'm physically fit. That should be the last year party because that just should be a given. Yeah, I agree. And that's the one thing I tell people that are trying to get hired, not that I'm any sort of expert at all, but there are certain elements that are in your control and your fitness and studying for tests where you know the material are two things that are in your control. So if you fail in either of those two, it's, it's on you. Perfectly said. Absolutely. Right. So then you graduate the academy. Actually, before we go that, being incredibly fit, were there elements, any elements that did catch you by surprise, whether it was the, the heat of the bunker gear or confined spaces or heights or any anything that did kind of put you on the back foot a little bit? Um, not I think the confined space that that was the only thing that at first you're like, oh, this is a little different. Uh, the heights don't give me I, I have a, a high respect for them, but it doesn't like bother me. But definitely the confined space. And then when you can't see your hand in front of your face for the first time and you get into a building and you lose the hose line and they're like, OK, figure out how to get out. And it, it you do get that sense of respect where you're like, oh, man, this is this is the real thing. So I think uh, that's all. I've always had a, a real respect for that. And uh, even when I teach my probies now that I have like, hey, this could happen one day. So prepare for the worst and hope for the best. So I have a, a definitely a respect for confined space. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, that's the thing as well. We've all seen those candidates that kind of strut in. And I mean, no disrespect when I say this, but, you know, very confident physically and they come into the academy and then the next thing they're, you know, ripping off their mask in the maze or, you know, you're like, oh, yeah. you, you, yeah. you look like the part, but obviously there was that piece missing. But yeah, I mean, it is, it's supposed to make you uncomfortable. It's the whole point. Yes. <clears throat> okay. So then, um, yeah, so your, your journey into actually getting hired. 
Yeah, so I uh, graduated the academy and I um, instantly I got a job. I started applying for a seasonal jobs with the California Department of Forestry, which is now Cal Fire CDF. And um, I got a job right out of the academy up north um, as a seasonal fireman. So um, I graduated the academy. I had a week off and then I started uh, up north in Sonoma Lake Napa, uh, which is up by like San Francisco area. So at that time, um, I continued my leave of absence because I had a total of a year with uh, uh, Cal Baptist University to come back and keep all my academic scholarships and that kind of thing. And I worked a season up there. Um, during that time, I was uh, applied for paramedic school. And because I graduated uh, number two in my class, I got a guaranteed spot into paramedic school. Uh, so the number one and number two guys got guaranteed spots into RCC's uh, paramedic school. So I applied for that program and I was able to get into that program starting January. So the season ended like I think November like 10th, I remember because my birthday is November 11th uh, or November 12th. I mean, and uh, season ended. I came back. I ended up getting married uh, to my uh, high school sweetheart on the 22nd of November. And then I started the uh, academy, uh, the paramedic school, like January 2nd. So it was all a lot of things happened all at once. Uh, my wife was at Cal Baptist. Also, we were high school sweethearts. She got a scholarship to go play volleyball at Cal Baptist. And so we were able to live there in the marriage housing, you know, living off of Top Ramen and uh, <laughs> those kind of dates. And then uh, I started paramedic school. That took about a year. And so what I did is the first four months during the uh, didactic part, the classroom part, because it's Monday through Friday, uh, I, didn't, I didn't work. I saved all the money from my season. I worked every single day of overtime I could. And we lived off of the uh, overtime that I worked for the past six months. And then as soon as I was done, I uh, went back to Parkview Community Hospital where I worked as an ER tech. Uh, they, I was able to get a job back there. And I did uh, nights. So I did my paramedic school during the day, um, my clinicals, my internship, and then I'd go work 7 to 7 a.m. And then hopefully have three or four hours of sleep and then back to paramedic school. So that was a long uh, six months of very little sleep. But, you know, it, it paid off. Yeah. <clears throat> now, now, how do you think that... Um Excuse me. How did the the sleep deprivation affect you? Because that's something that I talk about a lot. I want to talk about a little bit later as well. But did you notice a decline as as you weren't able to sleep every night? There there were some days that it, it starts to hit you where you start getting those headaches and like you're you're slower to react. It hundred percent hits you. Um, I can maintain. It's kind of like a, I describe it as a, a pediatric respiratory distress. You maintain for a long time and then you just crash. And there would be some days where I would just go to sleep. I, I don't even remember getting home and I'd wake up like 12 hours later, like what happened? Where am I? Um, so it does play a factor in that. And, uh, that, uh, I look back and I'm like, wow, that, that wasn't very smart, but I got, through, <laughs> I got through it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I had an interesting kind of parallel to your journey, but instead of being newly married, I was newly divorced. So <laughs> I was going through that during school yeah, yeah. and then working a busy rescue. And yeah, I mean, medic school was tough. I just had a a gentleman who was a Top Gun pilot, an F-16 pilot in the, the Air Force, retired and actually became a firefighter paramedic in Colorado Springs. And he said his paramedic school year was the hardest year of his life. So that kind of puts it into perspective. It does. It, you cram a lot, a lot in. You're becoming basically, I tell people like that don't know what it is. You're becoming basically a cross between a PA doctor slash nurse. And you have to be able to make these decisions on your own by yourself. Yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot to it. And you have to know a lot of knowledge all the way around because there's nobody there to back you up sometimes. No, it doesn't look good when you pull out a textbook in the middle of the street when someone's dying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. So, um, well, then what about the journey into law enforcement? 
So um, I got hired. I got done with paramedic school. I worked on an ambulance for about four months while I was testing a bunch of different apartments. Um, I got uh, picked up with three different departments and I chose uh, San Bernardino City, um, which is now San Bernardino County. We uh, we got absorbed into the San- county department after all the bankruptcy from stuff from San Bernardino about three and a half years ago. So I was on as a uh, paramedic. Uh, my engineer at the time was a uh, SWAT medic. And that was one of the things that kind of drew me to that department. They had a lot of specialty programs between truck stuff, hazmat, USAR, uh, SWAT medics. They had a, it was a, a very cool, very fast paced department. Um, so about three and a half years into it, uh, they had a spot open up. One of the guys that was senior was promoting to captain and uh, he did 10 years and was ready to get off. So I applied for the program and got accepted. So at that point, they, uh, I had to go back through the uh, police academy over at uh, RCC. Um, so then when, once I was done with the police academy, then I go through the full uh, post background, law enforcement background um, and get sworn in and start uh, working on the team until I can get through uh, SWAT, uh, SWAT school, which is a three week uh, class that they offer through California here. And then you're basically a full member of the team with my primary mission. Uh, being, I'm an operator, but my primary mission is the medic stuff for the uh, the other officers on the team, the canines, and then uh, civilians, and then suspects. Right, I love that. <clears throat> so the canines are way before the suspects. <laughs> we we got to make sure everybody's okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. Um, so with the SWAT academy, I remember watching my first apartment here in Florida. Um, their SWAT guys through going through training on our firegram while we were actually doing our academy there or our orientation. Um, what was the SWAT Academy like for you having been through a fire academy? Um, the SWAT, it was the, probably the SWAT Academy was the most physically demanding for me. Um, I, uh, I do CrossFit on a competitive level and I just got done and I made it to the CrossFit games as an individual, um, as a master's athlete, I finished uh, fifth in the world and, uh, out of like 56,000 guys, 35 to 40. So I was like, all right, I got this, no problem. But when you're in your vest, you know, all day long out on the range and you're shooting five to a hundred to a thousand rounds a day and you're standing there and then you have to carry a rock up a hill or a guy doesn't put his hood down and you're sitting there doing flutter kicks all day long. It, I, w- I, w- I was sore. I was surprised because I'm thinking, man, if here I am, I'm, I'm pretty good shape, fifth fittest guy in the world uh, for my age group. And these poor guys next to me, they must be dying. So it, uh, it was very surprising, uh, the physical demand of being in your vest the whole time. It kind of changes things versus when you just normally work out, you're just, you know, you're not in your vest. And uh, when you put on 50 or 60 pounds and it starts to fatigue your back and you're shooting and you're staying in that stance and you're doing different things than you normally do on a daily basis. So it was an eye opener for me. And I, I actually changed the way I work out now. And I start training that way a little more with my weights, wearing a weight vest, running with a weight vest and having that type of environment more. And did you had a lot of experience with weapons prior to that? Uh, I shot, um, not just kind of random. I would hunt a little bit. I do some uh, dove hunting, and uh, I would go shoot like at the range, that kind of stuff. But I wasn't really familiar with weapons. I enjoyed doing it, um, but um, getting into the law enforcement once I started the academy, then I was I was addicted. I just loved weapons and understanding how they work and being faster at reloading, being faster at shooting. Uh, I love shooting steel targets and it just, 
it became a more like we did a bunch of SWAT competitions and it just, I love to compete. So like, Hey, we can do a SWAT competition. So I really got into that side of it. And, uh, my wife doesn't like that because it's a detriment to our bank account sometimes. <laughs> it's expensive to shoot. <laughs> All right. So then, um, with the different models that I, we spoke about this just before we start recording, I've seen and, you know, and, and been told about different models the ones that i've seen sadly in the departments i've worked at have been here's a vest here's a helmet you got to share it with the entire department if someone starts shooting hide behind the rescue but you're you know you're a tactical medic or whatever or you're doing the the um the save training um but then you've got the other side of the spectrum which is you're going in on the stack it's kind of like the navy corpsman model almost where you're you know staging one room back um what was your model what and what were you actually carrying when you went in so when uh, December 2nd, which I responded to, and I was actually a tactical medic. So that day I was at, at SWAT training. We were actually doing active shooter training that day. They had uh, some recent, uh, the Paris terror attacks. So we were supposed to do uh, tubular assaults on like buses, uh, trains, uh, stuff like that. So they actually changed our training that morning and said, hey, let's fresh up on active shooter. We haven't done that in a while. And so they actually cha- changed our training day. So we were all kitted up, ready to go. We just had our Sims bolt carrier groups and our rifles. So that's all we had to swap out, which takes literally 15 seconds. And uh, the call came in. We thought it was training because we were doing active shooter training, but then you could hear the dispatcher's voice and you knew it wasn't training. So we were able to respond fully kitted up, ready to go as a SWAT team and get to this location within like nine minutes, which is typically unheard of. (laughs) So we had the stars kind of uh, aligned for us with that. And so what my my role, when I'm a a tactical medic, I'm there for the officers. so when we got there, there was a lot of people down outside already that had crawled out. There was about five victims down. There was uh, three that were already DOA. So we had eight victims outside. And I went in with my uh, team with, uh, we had like a four-man element and then another like, I don't know, eight or 10 guys came in another entrance. And I we basically just cleared the first floor because we're in an active shooter situation, you got, we had intel that they could have fled, but we weren't sure. There could have been three shooters, two shooters. So we're basically making sure that nobody else is dying. So we, our whole goal is to find the threat, eliminate the threat, and then start rendering aid. So once we breached a couple doors and went inside, um, when we were inside doing that, once I got the first floor cleared, when I went in that initial room, um, there was 20 to 30 people down in that initial room. Uh, one of the bullets struck the, uh, up in the plenum space, the sprinkler pipe dropping down. Um, it struck that. So the water was free flowing in there. Um, so there was like water flowing out the front door with like a little river of blood in the center of it that was going on the victims. Uh, people were screaming, somebody pulled the fire alarm. Um, and I, I'll get back to that story cause that's a kind of a crazy story. So the fire alarm's going off that you could smell the gunpowder in the air. It's like a sensory overload. So once we got that first room cleared, I knew like, Hey, my team's going to continue upstairs. I got to start getting these victims out. I got to start treating these victims or people are going to die. So I kind of got with my uh, sergeant, told him, branched off, and I went back to the room and just kind of started organizing treatment. And we made a casualty collection point. I didn't have to do a very little work as far as moving victims. I moved a couple victims, but all the officers that were there, they engaged. They already kind of started doing it. And all I did was organize who was most critical and they went out first. So We've kind of changed since that incident. We've kind of changed our model of rescue task force and how we're doing it because a lot of times, hey, we're going to set up these RTF groups. We're going to set up 
all this stuff. And by the time you get all that stuff set up, officers have already dragged people out, thrown them in their cars and driven them to the hospital. And then the fire department sit there with their cool vests and their helmets on and they're looking around like, well, we got it all set up. What are we going to do now? And the incident's already over. So since then, we've done a lot of different training with uh, multiple agencies because we're uh, with San Bernardino County. We're the largest county in the nation. So we have a lot of square miles to cover. We cover multiple different law enforcement agencies. So there's a lot of different protocols we have to adjust with and work with. So we've had to kind of tailor our things to multiple different law enforcement agencies where some city departments, you only have to worry about one. So we do have definitely have an uphill battle, but we've basically just simplified it on what we do um, as far as the interaction with them and just basically getting firemen in there into that warm zone, that casualty collection point and having the officers bring them out to us. They have their job, we have our job and it works perfectly. Right, so other other firefighters, are they at least wearing body armor in this scenario too? Yes, so we have, uh, we have a grant uh, that we did initially and then our department started funding uh, about 100,000, 80,000 a year uh, into a fund to replace the vest and the plates. Um, every five years that they expire. The new plates that we're going with, we're actually going with steel, which are a little heavier, but we're going to have a 10 to a 15 year shelf life on them. So it'll save our department, you know, millions of dollars. We have about 750 sworn firemen and every single fireman has a vest with a level 3A plate carrier in it. Beautiful. Tailored to them. Tailored to them. Custom fit to them. See, that's a big thing. I know I've talked to to Bill Goffrey, I had on who's... um, has a company that does MCI training, and that was one of the big criticisms. You know, I'm a skinny, 170 pound dude, and one of my old, you know, friends in my last apartment was about was about 350 pounds. Our vests are not going to be the same. Yes, exactly. So we have each vest is assigned to them. Those guys have it with them. So if they have a uh, overtime day, they take their vest with them with their fire gear. So they always have it on their thing. And then the helmets are there's four helmets assigned to every single piece of apparatus. So we, the helmets aren't custom fit uh, just because those are a little more expensive, but they do have helmets. And then we have uh, active shooter bags. So we have four on every single piece of apparatus. And so we use those on all of our shootings, stabbings, and then any active shooter. It's a quick response bag where we can basically put a tourniquet on, quick clot. We got glow sticks, um, flagging, anything we need to just basically render stop any bleeding control at that point and then we can get them out of the area and then we do our full triage and assessment on them right now i know there's been a lot of talk recently about tourniquets i'm sure both of us when we were in you know uh, emt and medic school we're taught the same thing you know if you put a tourniquet on the leg's gonna fall off so <laughs> exactly you know so did you see or hear any stories of that particular incident in san bernardino where tourniquets did save lives um, no, uh, we, we actually didn't apply any tourniquets. Uh, I think by the time we got there that anybody that may have needed a tourniquet had already potentially bled out. Um, I, I don't know. I can't really, that's just speculation. I, you know, that we know that if you have an arterial bleed, you can bleed out between two to, you know, five, six minutes, depending on how severe that arterial bleed is. We did do a couple needle decompressions. We did do a, a use a little bit of quick clot to pack a couple wounds, uh, but we didn't use any tourniquets. Right. Now, what about as, as far as weapons? Because I know, again, just, just from the layman, the idea of sending medics into a warm zone, you know, with ballistic vest, helmet, you know, close to, to these, these teams that are going in from law enforcement, completely unarmed seems counterintuitive to me. And I know, obviously, that there is the, the law side where you have to go through, you know, law enforcement school. But to me, that entry team needs to be armed to be effective. You're in the warm zone, same way as you'd be wearing, you know, some sort of level, 
hazmat suit if you're in the warm zone doing decon. So what kind of weaponry is the tactical medic carrying in that scene? So for me as a tactical medic, I'm embedded with my team as an operator. So I'm right. I'm about fourth or fifth back in the stack and I'm there primarily as a medic. I do carry a, a sidearm and I do carry a, an M4. Um, and that's basically for me to protect myself or my other operators in case one of them goes down. Because we know if an uh, officer goes down, our job is not to start pulling them out. Our job is to step over and lay down cover fire while the next guy behind me pulls them out to get them to a safe room. So us being embedded in the stack, we have to be able to do that. Um, so our primary mission isn't a point guy making first entry into the room. Our primary mission is for those off officers or even a suspect. Um, hey, we, we need to render aid because we have a duty to the community as well. So once we are, we're code four, all officers safe, we'll start rendering aid to those suspects as well and get them the help they need. It, heaven forbid it does go to uh, an OIS or an officer-involved shooting where we have to protect ourselves and shoot the suspect. So that's, in that role, we carry, we're going into the hot zone. We're going in. Um, we're in the thick of it. When our our firemen, they're going into a warm zone. So we get, they get on the border of that hot zone, that warm zone, but they're being escorted in by law enforcement. So they have three to four officers with them, basically setting up a corridor or covering them so they can work freely. Guys get a little like, oh, that's not our mission. That's not our job. Our mission is to rescue victims. If it was my child in there, I would hope a fireman would kind of push the limits a little bit to get my son or daughter out and that's what it tell them. And when everybody kind of looks at that, times are changing. You know, uh, three or 30 years ago, we never did hazmat either. 30, 40 years ago, it was like, oh, that's, oh, we don't do that stuff. Hey, we don't wear BAs either. Uh, you wear a BA, you're kind of looked down upon. It's like, oh, we don't need that stuff. Well, things are changing. Things are evolving. Active shooters are evolving and now it's becoming copycat. They're getting better. Now they're using explosives. They're, um, they're, get, they're learning from each one of these. So these things aren't going away. They're actually going up. So we have to evolve as a fire department also because we're looked upon as rescue, EMS, paramedic. So once the initial shots happen, now it becomes a big MCI. So we're looked at like, hey, why aren't you guys doing stuff? And that kind of changed with the whole Columbine, um, the L.A. Sh bank robbery shootout, like all these incidents that we've had. We keep evolving and we keep changing to accommodate this. So we know, and in California, they actually, three years ago, they passed a law um, in California, AB 1598, stating you will, as a fire department and law enforcement agency, you will have a active shooter response and, and work together in conjunction with law enforcement or the fire department. So we're ordered by the state of California now to have policies in place and train on a annual basis. Yeah. Because I'm sorry, mate, that, I missed, I cut you off that last bit. Uh, so in the state of California, they passed a law, AB 1598, that states you will have an active shooter response, you will have active shooter policies, and you will train on an annual basis and work hand in hand with law enforcement agencies and fire agencies as a joint effort. Right. So it was a pretty bold statement that the California did because of these active shooter responses. And that requires us. And now that opens up some federal funding that opens up a different a lot of different stuff. But it gets law enforcement and fire departments talking the same language when they're doing these things, because we have to work hand in hand. So we have to get a little bit closer. But officers now before 
when we uh, I took the act, uh, active shooter uh, class uh, through post through our California Police Officers Association and you do the class and you okay here's the suspect you find him you're moving in your diamond formation you kill the suspect and it's like all right yeah and everybody's high-fiving but the scenario is not over we have 30 victims down and it's like oh we'll just wait for fire to come in well now when they teach it you're going in you're eliminating the suspect and then the second part of the scenario is hey now you got to start rescuing these off or these innocent civilians and getting them out so fire can treat them. So now it's good because officers aren't just thinking eliminate the suspect. They're thinking I got to eliminate the suspect and then start rescuing. So we've had that mindset. So they drag them out. And as soon as they see fire guys, they're like, okay, here, dump them off. They can go back in. So we're not in that environment where per se, the, where we can't protect ourselves. We're in a safe environment on the border of the hot zone or on the border of the warm zone, cold zone, that area where we can start rendering aid in a safe area. Yeah, I've I've been told that a few times by by people. Oh, it's not my job to go into an active shooter. And it's like just like you said, our job is to save lives. Now, of course, if someone's standing there firing at you, you're not going to run towards them like some scene from <laughs> Tropic Thunder. But you know, <laughs> but at the same time, I I mean, it was weird. I I went to school, fire school here in Florida, and worked here initially, and then went to the West Coast, worked for Anaheim for a few years, and then came back. And when I came back. Hearing the nonsensical bullshit about vertical ventilation. Oh, it's so dangerous, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, but you're fucking putting people under the roof, but you're telling me it's too dangerous to stand on. And what I realized, it was education. There was myths, you know, but the, to be an effective, you know, roof operation, you have to know what the hell you're doing. You have to know how to set your aerial properly, how to, you know, know what kind of construction there is, how to sound, how to get the hell off, you know, not stand there and, and, you know, <laughs> wait for the news crews to catch three, three rigs just staring at their heat hole yes but this is the same with this of course you're not going to take unnecessary risks but sadly i was just talking to a friend of mine who's an armed london policeman who was there at the last london bridge attack these are happening all the time and for you to have a badge on your chest but say oh i'm not going to go when situation x happens is the perfect opportunity to take that badge off your chest and say i'm, I'm going to retire because you're fucking useless by that point perfect yep i agree you know, we sign up with this is an inherent dangerous job and you know what you're getting into signing up for this. And at the end of the day, we're going to have to take some risks. There are risks that you take as a fireman or a police officer. It just that's what it is. Now, as long as we have the training and we're smart about it, you can do it in a safe manner. But there are risks and things might happen. It's just it's our job. Yeah, exactly. Now, you mentioned about the fire alarm. So I'd love to go back to that. And then also the the el other element that made it even harder when you had water raining down on this scene as well. Yeah. So uh, as far as the firearms, what uh, what we the way we've designed our program is because um, there's a big liability. That's the everything is liability. Right. So the fire chiefs are like, well, I mean, firemen carrying guns. Well, once we're embedded as a tactical medic, we're, we're no longer a fireman. We're a police officer. We're a reserve officer. So that's why we go to the reserve academy. Um, there's different levels in California. They have level three, level two, and level one. So we become level two officers, which allows us to do anything a level, a full-time police officer can do as long as I'm in the presence of a level one. So that allows us being sworn in as reserve officers. So any use of force, any officer involved shooting, any police stuff is covered by the police department because they're the professionals at that. They have the legal team, they have the lawyers, that's what they deal with on a daily basis. And then any paramedic stuff is covered by the fire department at that point. And then as far as our workman comp issue, that kind of stuff is covered under the fire department. So it's a good joint way to make 
the police chief happy and the fire chief happy and accomplish your goals. Right now, what about the fire alarm? So you you talked about that yes. being pulled by someone. I want to so so why that was pertinent, and also on the other side of it, why the sprinkler activation actually made it harder as far as victim removal. So the uh, the fire alarm uh, about a year prior to that, uh, my SWAT sergeant and one of our uh, corporals actually went to that same location, the county building, and taught all those county employees uh, run hide fight, which is what to do in an active shooter situation. So we trained them one year prior to all those county employees and um, the actual, the terrorist, Saeed Farouk, he was in that training. So, so he was, a, he was, so it was actually technically a workplace shooting, wasn't it? Because he was a member yes. of the public health department. Yes. Yep. So we taught him what to do and what you should do in an active shooter. So he had all the training. So he had a little bit of a head step of he knows what they're going to do, how they're going to do it. But we taught them a year ago, so they get about a two and a half hour class of what to do, run, hide, fight, how to barricade the doors. Um, th- you're not used to that. You know, in a our situation, we're trained to these critical situations, but in a normal everyday person is not trained for that. And for them to be faced with that type of environment and to remember the training we did a year ago, it's just incredible. So one of them went up and actually remembered to, to pull the fire alarm. They pulled the fire alarm, which activated the alarm in all three buildings on the location, which scared the uh, the terrorists. And they finished up what they were doing on the first floor and they exited the building because they had other plans. They they look, they found multiple pipe bombs and a manufacturing stuff that they had in their apartment complex or in their apartment. And they had multiple pipe bombs in their car after we uh, uh, ultimately uh, eliminated them in the street after the pursuit. So they had multiple plans of doing stuff. So by us, the the person that pulled the fire alarm, it basically they knew they had limited time because people were going to start responding. So it basically deterred them to not go upstairs, to not go any farther and in, deeper into the building and potentially kill more people. Uh, with the water being activated, um, it, it, it made everybody, everything was wet. So with office workers, um, some of them aren't, I'll say this politically correct, in the best shape, so they're a little obese. So some of the workers that we did have to drag out were, were overweight, uh, 200 to even 300 pounds. So we had to utilize chairs. We had to have two or three people dragging. Um, that was a lot of things we did see is where um, guys weren't trained on how to actually lift and drag a patient. So a lot of times they were just grabbing the arms while the skin gets really wet. It was hard to drag. Uh, so then you had to grab like belts and I have three people in the middle. I had a, a salvage, like a carry hall, they call it like a salvage type cover with handles on the side. Uh, so I had one of those. So we used that multiple times. We put a couple victims in chairs. We were able to roll them out. But we, we show we, after that, we did training later with all tons of different agencies on how to get behind the person, go underneath their armpits, grab their opposite arm and be able to lift them up off the ground and kind of duck walk backwards where it allows you to get the friction off the ground and actually start dragging a patient in a easier manner where you can drag them a lot farther or utilize tables, utilize a bunch of different stuff. So that was an error on like my part because uh, we teach the active shooter response for the fire department. And I never foresaw like teaching them how to drag patients. We always talk about how to treat the patients. So that was some, some things that we, we changed and that we really implement now also with, we train all of our county employees as well. So anybody that asks for this training, we give them a, a bleeding control class and how to move victims and how to utilize what you have in your office space, how to barricade your doors, how to um, um, basically when to run, when to hide, and when to fight. 
Right. Now, the other scary thing about this story was the secondary devices. So tell me about that. Yeah. Um, so I had about 22, I think it was, victims down inside, and I had those four or five victims outside. So when I initially came around the corner, um, there was three victims outside. Uh, two of them had uh, agonal respirations. So what I did is I just pulled the two over. They were right on the curb. I kind of pulled their head to hang their head over the curb to kind of open up their airway. They both started breathing again pretty well. Um, those two people actually survived, which I was, I mean, it was pretty cool to like to hear about that because a couple of the officers started rendering aid and those two were the first that got out right away. So they were, which was good because they were the most critical. Um, so when we were inside, there was three or four tables um, lined up that were about 50 feet long, multiple tables together. And then at the end of the uh, conference room was the, like a dais, almost like a, a meeting hall where you'd have a, a meeting or a city council meeting. Well, these were county employees, so there was uh, county backpacks. And so everybody had similar backpacks. Well, we later found uh, the FBI when they were going through some backpacks, they later found an IED. Um, so this had three pipe bombs duct taped and wired to the radio receiver, the servo to basically when they tried to turn on or turn the wheel or activate it, it would send a, a signal and basically detonate those pipe bombs. Um, what I believe, and this is all speculation, there's no proof, there's no anything. Um, they talked to the a neighbor because he actually provided the uh, weapons, the uh, AR-15s and the uh, handguns for these terrorists to do their act. So once they interviewed him, um, they said, yeah, they planned three years ago. They were going to do the same thing. They were going to go on the 91 freeway, which is a, a pretty busy freeway, drop a bomb off the thing and then shoot people as they ran from their cars. And then they were going to flee to Riverside Community College and shoot people, uh, detonate a bomb in the middle of the quad when class got out and shoot people as they ran. Um, so they had a similar type attack. So they he went he brought that backpack with him that morning, had the bomb with him. Um, got in an argument with one of the employees over religion, um, left about 1030, went and got his wife and showed back up in this uh, rental car that they had. So I believe, and they found the radio receiver in the car, I believe he was outside trying to detonate that pipe bomb and it didn't go off because they didn't wire it right. So that bomb was in there the whole time while we're dragging patients. We walked by it. I was probably within three, four feet of it multiple times, dragging patients out. When you look at uh, the FBI, they have a slide that they did and they tracked his phone the whole time after the incident. So as soon as the sh first shots were fired, they did a, a tracked his phone all the way until we uh, shot and killed both of them. And they circled us multiple times. And I believe they were circling us trying to get a radio signal to detonate that bomb while we were inside. So they, they don't care who, they, these terrorists don't care. They, they wanna get the, the numbers. They wanna be on TV. They're dead. They want the numbers and they want to be infamous, as they call it. And he was at he went over and got radicalized and he brought back this wife. And he his whole job was to kill all the infidels, no matter if they're police officers, firemen, uh, innocent civilians, kids, doesn't matter. They're going to kill everybody. Yeah, it's it's mind blowing because I know when I when I researched it before we started talking, um, yeah, normally some ISIS or someone would be like, yeah, yeah, they were part of us. We we were helping them, and everyone was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> All these terrorist organizations are like, no, I have no fucking idea who these lunatics are. So you see this over and over again. So the London Bridge um, stabbing, uh, which I just learned about, that was a a guy that was in prison who was released in, you know, some kind of automatic uh, 
act where they, they basically half the sentence and he was on his way to speak to um, a conference about rehabilitation. All these groups that were, were trying to, you know, do more positive things in prison to turn people's lives around. And he stabbed the two people that were fighting for him, that were trying to do the, the rehabilitation. So when you look at these cases, there is no fucking higher meaning. You know, these, these are just mentally ill, sick individuals that I know, you know, in, in this particular shooting literally executed their, their, their colleagues. And, and then we, we look for meaning and there is no meaning. They're just, they're just so far gone that, you know, like you said, you and me are just, are just, this this cartoon version of of the bad guy in in their in their minds and it's terrifying to look at it as a responder because how you would think a normal human being would act is not going to happen in this scenario yeah i 100% agree i just went to a uh, cato conference which is our tactical uh conference that we do every year in california and they had a one of the officers that uh, was involved in the shooting uh in london and he went over the whole incident and i was just blown away how long they went, how different all over the place and with a knife, which is just, it doesn't matter where you're at, whether you're overseas, you're on US soil. Like you said, these people are like insane. They don't care. They're mentally ill. Exactly. And that's the thing as a responder, you got to think about that. You're not dealing with a sane individual. You're dealing with a complete psychopath. This isn't even war. You're not in Afghanistan or Iraq where you know they they truly are now defending their land or whatever they believe is right these people are you know just completely broken so yep. you know i mean it, you have to rethink the way that you 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 view the entire scene and what's terrifying is you guys are walking by unbeknownst to you there's hundreds of backpacks that look the same but a device that they were probably trying to to explode and kill all of you as well and we're always taught about secondary devices but in you know the mayhem of an attack like this it's going to be the last thing on your mind at that moment. Yeah. And you always like we as we went through doorways, we were looking down hallways. We we're looking at doorways to see um, like we're trained to do. But we're not we, we never thought to like there's a bunch of county backpacks like to, that he would hide in because there's eight or nine of the same exact backpacks. And it wasn't until the FBI started going through the crime scene. And he opened up the backpack and they instantly call landslide and they get out of the building um, and they found that device. So. It's just, I mean, it wouldn't have changed anything as far as our response. Even if I knew it was in there, I would have still gone in and got people because that's, that's the inherent danger that we take. Uh, I, if it was my kid in there, I would hope somebody would take the chance to drag him out. Absolutely. Well, speaking of dragging people out, from a tactical medic perspective, tell me about the triage. I know you ended up um, moving the staging area. So from the beginning, how did that kind of evolve? Um, so we, our Lieutenant, uh, he actually was an EMT. Um, he actually did the fire Academy. He kind of went the fire route, uh, also, uh, but he, or he ended up going the law enforcement route. He started kind of started the fire route. So he, he understands he has ICS, uh, 200, 300, 400. He understands, uh, both sides, which was a key element to the success that we had. And then two weeks prior, we went to an LAX debriefing when they had the shooting at LAX and one of the TSA agents was inside and we couldn't get to him on the fire side and it was kind of that whole debacle that happened, um, which we learned from and different elements. And they talked about what was, what they did well, what they did bad. So these debriefs is what we learned from, and that was fresh in his mind. So he knew that we had to get the triage area closer. 
So that was that's the biggest thing is when I teach on these active shooter responses and I teach the chief officers and uh, different things is I tell them, hey, your number one priority, you have to set up your triage area in route to the hospital because you can have no communication whatsoever with law enforcement. And their whole mindset is, hey, there's somebody that's hurt. I'm going to put them in my car and I'm going to drive them. I know where the hospital's at. I'm going to drive them to hospital. And all of a sudden they run into 10 big fire engines. Like, oh, cool, cool. I don't have to continue to the hospital. They're going to dump them on you. So they're going to get they're going to get aid quicker because it just happened. So, you know, if the hospital's south or the trauma center south, you need to set up your triage area south of that incident. So the officers will run into them when there is independent action, because at that day we had, I think, 15 different law enforcement agencies um, plus. I mean, there was fishing game there. There was secret service there. There was the FBI. There was different city agencies. There was county agencies. There was anybody and everybody that is an armed sworn personnel showed up to that incident. So now we don't have the common communication. So it just happened. Probation had trucks that were, their office was right around the corner. And a guy says, Hey, I got trucks. Yeah, go get it. And he thought about it, engaged, and he was able to bring trucks around. We threw seven people in the back of trucks and he drove right out and ran right into the fire department where their triage area was set up and just handed the patients off and they got treatment right away. There was uh, one lady they did a documentary on that she coded like three or four times on the table. She got, I don't know, 20 units of blood, uh, but she's still alive today because of that fast treatment. Uh, every single victim that was alive when we got on scene is still alive today. And every single victim was on a surgical table in under 57 minutes. That's amazing. So that's where we talk about like, hey, if we had to set up RTF, we had to set up this and did all that, people, more people would have died. So when we utilize, let the officers do the rescue, you bring them out to the casualty collection point. Hey, they brought them out to our triage. That was perfect. They put them in cars, brought them out to their triage. Luckily, we had a tactical medic in there to be able to triage them and get the most critical out right away and get them to the hospital first, which helped. But we can recreate that by also training our officers and, and giving them what I like. I tell them, hey, this is just combat triage. Hey, are they bleeding or are they breathing? Or are they not? OK, if they're not breathing and there's 50 other people down, you got to move on. You know, there's hey, if there's any bleeding, control the bleeding. Even if it's not bright red, doesn't matter. Slap a tourniquet on it. It can't hurt. We know that now. So the officers are engaging in this stuff and they're the ones that are helping us a lot because they're inside. They're initially with them. They're stopping bleeding. They're dragging them out to us and allowing us to do their job, which is is perfect. And that's how you work together with these law enforcement agencies. And once the officers understand that um, and the firemen understand that and we both know our roles, it, it, it works flawlessly. Yeah. And that relationship is so important with the Orange County when I work with them. Like our, uh, you know, deputies were in, were in the stations all the time, eating with us, and we trained with them, and it was, it was such a great relationship. And then my last one, they were in the same building as our station just upstairs, and we we would never see them. And I think historically, it just wasn't, you know, welcoming, and and they didn't have that relationship, and it was it was terrible because I'm like, how the fuck can you not <laughs> talk to these people that are, you know, six feet above your head? So I would try and pull them in and invite them every chance we had. We would have some super secret squirrel stuff or all of a sudden we have a whole bunch of SWAT guys staging in our station. Um, you know, the the theme park with the rat was under some sort of, you know, uh, warning. Um, and that would be an opportunity then at least, at least you know, 
talk to some of them and I can even get some of them out working out with me sometimes. But yeah, I mean that you'd think that would be so obvious, but some, some of the cities and counties even hate each other, the police and fire. And it's like, you need yeah. to grow the fuck up because yes. lives are at stake. The same as, as departments, cities and counties, fire and fire. Like for fuck's sake, there's only one person that's important apart from you know yourselves and your crew's safety is the people that we serve and if you're fighting over jurisdiction or what color shirt you're wearing you're completely missing the point yeah i agree i agree and the biggest thing too is i we have a a lot of these trainings what happens is it happens on the lower level so you show up you might have a battalion chief there but most of the time it's the captain the engineer and the paramedics doing this training and you never get admin that's going to show up and run the incident at these trainings understanding what we what we need to do what we need to accomplish because they're the initial quarterback they got to get in there and get it set up where we're going to be or that first initial captain so we, we made it a mandate that when we do these active shooter trainings that every single personnel all the way up to the fire chief and our fire chief shows up all the time to all of our trainings every single chief we just did a modern fire behavior class going through burn boxes doing stuff every single personnel from our our head chief all the way down went through the training which is i think awesome because now they they get you get to see the guys you get to talk you get to communicate it builds those relationships but they also understand what we're going through so i think that that's a real good thing that our department started doing and i i highly recommend that to other departments is your admins got to do tabletop exercises with law enforcement with your guys to know, hey, if we have this, this is what we're going to do. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Because that's the thing, you know, you're wearing bugles, you're sitting at a desk, but if you've disconnected yourself from what the men and the women on the front line are doing, how effective a leader are you going to be? Yep, I agree. Right, so then one more thing with, you know, what we think of triage, obviously one of the things that pops to mind is tags. Did you have, did, did you tag people or was it purely more of a, you know, just, observing how the patient was presenting and just triaging that way yeah so i i initially didn't have any tags and um i didn't have really anything on me and i never thought about an active shooter response um as a tactical medic i never i knew that I, we were we might respond to that and i'd have to like do some pain but i never thought about a full-blown which was which was an error on my part, 100%. Um, so now when I, I started triaging and what I would do is I treat a patient, I said, okay, take them. Well, once officers saw this, it's like worker ants. Every single officer engaged, which was phenomenal. And these guys started just dragging patients. Well, what ended up happening is then they're just grabbing everybody, dead or alive. Um, they don't know. That's not their expertise, but they're helping, which is great. So what I did is I kind of stood in the middle uh, before the doorway and as they started bringing patients, I would just look at them. Okay, no, they're, this, one's, this one's dead. Leave them here. Uh, take this patient out. Okay, take this patient out. Um, and I wasn't able to mark patients. So what I did is I had IV tape, the transparent tape. I had a roll of that. And so anybody that was dead, I just put that tape over the top of them so they knew. And I just yelled throughout the room, hey, if they have tape on them, just leave them. So I started trying to mark the, uh, the deceased victims with the tape. So now what I do, because though that ribbon that we have, we have it with our fire department, you can wrap it around the wrist, but it, it, when you start dragging a patient or doing that, it ends up falling off. So what I carry now is electrical tape. So I have black electrical tape and red electrical tape, and basically I can mark it around their wrist real quick or across wherever their, their head, wherever, and I can just mark them deceased or critical. So if you see red tape, they know to start dragging people out. So it allows me just a quick little thing, and it doesn't come off, and it's waterproof. So yeah. that was one of the things that I started carrying because I never thought about having a sprinkler or being near water, or having everybody soaking wet out in the rain. I, you don't think about these things until it actually happens to you. So 
that's something that we've changed as far as having that as uh, all of our tactical medics have that electrical tape with them. Yeah, and this is so important that we learn from you know scenes like yours. I had uh, John Spearer on the show. He was at the um, Aurora shooting. And, you know, we do the kind of 32 can do with the respirations. And he's like, these people had been gassed and then they were running. So they were blind and they, they were, you know, panting from, from exertion. He said, you know, they weren't able to follow instructions. Their breathing was higher than 30. So that was all out the window. And then with the ribbons, I've, I've observed this too in my department. Like you get an MCI at night, you can't tell if it's green or red. You know, <laughs> under the yellow streetlights. So, uh-huh. you know, the, it, we, we take some of these things that look so good when we're training in the PowerPoint presentations and no disrespect to the people that come up with them. But it's only when they're applied to a real scenario that you realize, you know what, that actually just, just doesn't work and we need to rethink that. Yeah, no, I agree. There are tools in the toolbox. You know, it might work on some occasions. It might work on the thing is I tell my guys, hey, I want a big old toolbox. I want that huge toolbox when you walk in like oh this guy's a good mechanic even though he might not be but you have that big <laughs> toolbox because you you can you've you've had experience you know and that's the thing is i'll take experience over book knowledge all day long just because you know and you can apply it and that's the thing is you learn from each call you learn from studying these calls you learn from being that and just take those tools and just know like i tell our guys you don't have to do this you can adjust it based off the fly just just do something. Yeah. Well, I really like the idea of having triage en route to the hospital as well, because, you know, like you said, if, you, if you're too close or with the Aurora, they were all coming out of, you know, it's a giant building. So they came out of all these different fire exits. Yes. But yeah, if there's an archery through to where people are probably going to be heading, then yeah, give them, you know, a minute or two in a police car to get them out of the, the, the hot zone and then transfer them over and let them be triaged properly. Yep. Absolutely. And that's what I tell our officers because they always ask that, like, well, when do I put an officer in the car and transport them? And I said, well, at, at the end of the day, like, how long can you hold your breath for? And they all like, oh, like 60 seconds. I said, OK, you think about you drive a person all the way to the hospital and they're not breathing. You think they're going to survive? And then they're like, oh, my gosh, I never thought about that. Or you could drive them right out around the corner to the fire station and we can start breathing for them and then get them to the hospital. It might delay them getting the hospital by three or four minutes, but we're going to keep them alive versus you drive them there. You just kill them. Yeah. So it's that kind of thing. It's like those those little changes that we if we can just like you said, that's a perfect example. I love that. The artery. You find the uh, the artery where every all the blood's going to flow and you put it there. And that way, you know, these guys, these people are going to get help. Brilliant. No, I think that's a great, great idea. So specifically from that scene, were there any things after you, you know, did a tailball critique that you did change that you learned from that specific event? Um. What we did learn is that the the triage area locations, you got to put it in route to the hospital. That was the number one thing. And that's what I teach. I said, if you guys listen to this conversation and like see this, this bald white guy standing up there talking, if you can remember one thing, just remember, put your triage area location in route to the hospital. You guys will have 50 to 100% more success just by doing that one thing because even the people that are – doing their own independent actions, they're going to run into you because that is the ultimate goal. Every The river has to flow downhill, so you flow right into it. Um, the the whole response and how we integrate with PD, um, that has definitely changed a lot. Uh, we do a lot more training. Uh, we know a lot more faces, so we know kind of our role. We know their role. Um, our packs with the electrical tape was a big thing. Um, and then what we're doing now with our initial first captain on scene, because before we used to have like you'd stage out of the area, 
Um, the battalion chief would get there. He would try to find a command post. He would try to find who's in charge. Nobody knows who's in charge because most of the sergeants are engaged and inside. The lieutenant, the watch commander is coming to the incident. So you're probably going to beat him there. He's not even on scene. So we don't have anything established yet. So what we have our captains do is we have the captain find an officer. Um, we have, and then when we're en route to these active shooter events, we have an extra HT and we can tune into the PD channel just to listen to their radio traffic. Cause then we get direct communication of whether how many victims are down. So we can kind of give the hospital a heads up. We know if there's still shooting going on and we know which way the suspects fled, because if the suspects fled and they're coming right at us, we might want to detour how we're getting to the scene. Um, so that that's the thing is we can get a lot of information just by listening in. I, our guys are never allowed to talk on the PD channels, no matter if it's emergency and someone's shooting at them. They're never allowed to talk on that because that's for their channel. But we can listen in and get detailed information of what is happening. And that way it doesn't get, have to get relayed from them to their dispatch to our dispatch and relate to us because you play that telephone game and things get dropped out. So we get detailed information by listening to that. And then the captain can tie in with a an officer on scene or one of the sergeants by just walking in there, leaving his guys at the rig. He's got his helmet and vest on. And hey, where, how many victims you got? Where are you guys at? What do you need? And they can get detailed information and they can determine where to set up the triage area and get firsthand information to get guys in there quicker versus waiting on a lieutenant or waiting on a battalion chief to set this whole thing up. We can get our captain who was a company officer in there quicker. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for um, empowering your men and women, you know, and obviously we hear the horror stories of the micromanager where that never happens. But, you know, these these officers on the rigs are supposed to be at a commander scene. So that makes perfect sense. If you're first on, you're first on and you get the ball rolling, become IC and and, you know, and then using things like, you know, police scanners and that kind of thing, the police radio to to get information so you can start making those decisions as we talked earlier. Like, is this an acceptable risk? Are we walking into, you know, a very dangerous situation or can we start removing, you know, uh, patients from an area that is deemed somewhat warm zone and then work our way forward as as we're told by by PD? Yes, Absolutely. I think it's just it's learning that. And I think where we had a little bit of a um, an advantage to is because there there was like 60 homicides in our town uh, that that year. I think we averaged between 50 to 60 homicides every year. So our guys work with PD a lot on shootings. We work, you know, we're basically staging out of the area. Then we're going in. And when we go into these shooting calls, it's still a warm zone. Sometimes PD is still looking for a suspect. It's no different than an active shooter. It's a warm zone, but they set up a corridor and they're there to protect us while we're doing a rendering aid because they're still setting up perimeters and looking for suspects. But it's no different than that. And that's how people, once they start realizing that, once we get there, the shooting's over. Like there could be IEDs, yes, but it's just a big shooting. It's no different than what we do on a daily basis. And then guys kind of look at it like, oh, okay, that makes sense. It's all how you look at it. It's all perception. It's, it's continuing the more and more of these happen, the more and more guys are like, okay, I get it. And then our department now, we have full buy-off by all of our captains, by all of everything. And they're, it's just, it's going to continue to progress. And they're even teaching it at the academy level now, active shooter stuff and rescue task force response, which is phenomenal. Yeah. And I heard you mention this on, on the other podcast I listened to that you did last week, um, which is so true. You know, that the other thing is when we have an event like this, you don't bury it under the carpet. You, you, figure out what worked, figure out what didn't work and then learn from it and then, and then share it. Tell everyone else 
um, you know, the, the pros and the cons of the system that you use. So as you mentioned in that, in that podcast, and I agree with a hundred percent, those people didn't die in vain. We, we take that event and we learn so that we can save lives at the next one. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. You got to humble yourself. Hey, like there was a lot of things like I look back and hey, we did our best job that day. But there's a lot of things like looking back after you're seeing from a thousand feet in the air, you're like, hey, we could have maybe done this. Could it have changed it? Maybe not. Maybe maybe it could have. But we learn from those incidents and then we get that gear like, oh, that would have made our job easier. But you got to humble yourself because I guarantee nobody is ever going to be perfect at these incidents. You're going to do your best job to the best of your ability and your training. But there's things you learn that the world needs to know because they're going to be faced with something similar, maybe in a week, maybe in a month or maybe in a year. But they need to get the information out there. And I think, like I said about the hospital thing, that's changed a lot. I've had people like, hey, we had a uh, uh, shooting with uh, six people in an office building. Hey, we set up the triage area and route to the hospital worked perfectly. That was awesome. So those things like when you get that feedback, it makes the incident that I went through and the stressors and the stress that was on my family and media and all that stuff, it does, it goes like, wow, that's, that's why this happened to me because now I'm able to help all these other agencies and more lives are saved every single day because of the training that we can provide based off the lessons we learned. Yeah. And that's why I'm so thankful that you're taking the time to do this podcast too, because we're able to spread this literally around the globe and it might be someone in Malaysia that learns from this, you know? Yeah. So, all right. Well then one more kind of area attached to this incident I want to move on and talk about CrossFit but you know another huge part of this is you and the men and women that you went on that scene with obviously saw horrendous things I mean you know the 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 number of people we had 14 killed 22 seriously injured that is a huge you know body count how did you and your crew deal with the following days and weeks after the uh, the incident um it it doesn't really, it, it's, it's weird. It, it affects everybody differently. For me, like we go on a lot of shootings, so I've seen a bunch of stuff. This was a little different because these are innocent people. A lot of the shootings we go on are gang related. Um, they're innocent people, but it's just a different environment. Here's innocent office people that had no clue. Um, so it, it was, it was hard. I didn't really think about it till about a week later. And uh, we went all the way through because then what happened is that the, the, we got in pursuit of the suspects and we had to basically go. Uh, we ended up not us, the SWAT team, but a couple members of our team that were going to their cars. They heard the call go out and they got engaged and they ended up shooting and killing his wife and um, the terrorist. And then we had to go take them into custody in the Bearcats thinking, hey, there's could potentially bomb. So the, there was like two stressors that day. There was the initial incident and the whole shooting in the street that we ended up killing the suspects. And then we're on high alert because then now there are people are calling in bomb threats to the hospital. They're, the Amazon, we have a two, uh, 2.1 million square foot Amazon distribution center. They called in a bomb threat there. They had a guy that heard the shootings when we were shooting the suspects um, through the streets. He jumped over the fence, ran across the airport. The airport police almost shot this guy running across the airport thinking that's another terrorist attack. So there's all these incidents that happen within incidents. And you don't really think about it because you're, you're in game mode. You're like... I have this job to do. I got to do this. We got to go home at like four o'clock in the morning. And they said, Hey, go back to the station, go home, whatever you got to do, but you got to be back here at seven. <laughs> we're like in like in three hours. Yeah. Cause we're on tactical alert. So I just went back to the fire station. Um, I slept. I didn't really didn't sleep. I just kind of stared at the, the roof the whole time, just processing all that. Took a, sh 
took a shower and then went back the next day. We were on tactical alert because uh, they were doing candlelight vigils. We had to like do security things for it because there was people showing up that probably shouldn't have been there. That was pretty disrespectful. Uh, then I w- it was my normal day on. They didn't have any coverage. So I had to jump on the fire engine that night at uh, 10 o'clock at night and finish off the rest of the shift at 8 o'clock that morning. So I finally got to go home after that time and decompress. And I remember just like holding my kids and then I kind of broke down like when I got to my kids and my wife and I just remember like tearing up because now all that, you know, you're done and all that emotion just floods in. And then I was fine. I was just um, kept low key. I didn't talk about it. Uh, My department didn't talk about it. And until that Sunday, I went to church and our church actually responded because they're close by, responded to that incident. They had counselors there. All the pastors were there to help it on all the innocent people and they showed all the victims up on on the um large the big screen at church and i just broke down i had to walk out of church the only time ever i walked out of church and i just it was just a flood of emotions because all you remember seeing those faces you remember where they were laying you remember that and it's just an overwhelming feeling not that i did anything wrong not that anything but just the event itself so you you struggle you struggle with that but you just you got to tell yourself hey you you were there for a reason and without you being there, more people would have died. And now you need to teach. And that's why I enjoy doing these podcasts. I enjoy teaching because I know I'm still helping all those victims. So those four, 14 people, like you said, they didn't die in vain. I'm helping five years later people to get better at these active shooter responses. And I'm saving lives and helping people every single day because of that incident. And God put me in that place for a reason. And I'm continuing to do this and I'll continue until my career is done. And even after that to teach on these incidents and why they happen and continue to get better because of that incident. Yeah. And I think that's how you honor the dead. I just had uh, Travis Howes on who was one of the guys at the Charleston nine fire. And he, he and, you know, his, his brothers went in and retrieved the nine firefighters that were killed, you know, and again, I mean, he broke down in that conversation. But again, I know him, Dr. David Griffin is one of his, you know, his brothers from Charleston and he tours the country, like just constantly trying to share the message, trying to, you know, share the lessons that they learned too. But it is so important. And it also takes the humility of the rest of us to, you know, put your ego in check and say, I don't know everything. And rather than on a slow day watching Jerry Springer for six hours straight, maybe I should shut the fuck up and actually go listen to a podcast or (laughs) read, you know, because we're not going to learn from you unless we have the humility to actually say, I don't know everything, which, you know, I, I don't think it's that hard in the fire service when you look at what we're responsible for. But there is a huge amount of complacency in some people that you know, needs to be shaken out of them. Like, look, you know, we we don't know what we're going to be responding to next. So learn from the people that have been on those calls. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's just, it comes down to being lazy. And that the, the lazy firemen are the firemen that are going to get hurt. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of not being lazy, first CrossFit workout, how did you find that? Um. Wow. So I uh, I actually have triplets. So I have uh, two girls and a boy. Uh, they're 11 years old. So that kind of for like, I'd say three years, it was uh, it was jogging with a stroller, not lifting too many weights because I was kind of locked in at home. And uh, my good buddy that I went to, actually to kindergarten with, his him and his wife uh, kind of got into CrossFit and they opened up their own gym in their garage and then expanded it to 300 people in a big old warehouse. So he started in his garage. And he's like, hey, you got to try this CrossFit thing. I'm like, CrossFit? Like, 
So I'm thinking cross training, kind of this. So I went over to his house, we barbecued, and he put me through the workout of the day. And from then, I was just addicted. I was like, wow. And I look at like this 16-year-old girl beat me in the workout. And I'm like, what the heck? Like, all right, this can't happen again. Like, no, there's no way, you know. And then you look around and you start looking up these named workouts, Grace, Isabel, Fran. And you look at like, holy cow, like there's all these people in the world that are better than me. And I'm like, all right, I'm I'm really out of shape. But I was, you know, running 530 miles, running this stuff, but you're not in functional shape where you're having to lift, you're having to do this, you're in running shape, cardio shape. So that just changed it for me. And I, uh, within three months, I did my first competition. I got an intermediate level and I was just addicted from then on where it's just, cause you, it's, you get to compete. That's where it changes, where you go to the gym and you do back and buys, chest and tries, and then you jump on the treadmill. There's, there's not a motive behind it. When human beings have a motive and a reason behind it, they will work harder. They will push harder. When they have an accountability of people to their right, to their left, they're going to push harder because they don't want other people to think differently of them. So that's why CrossFit's so successful. And that's why we, we preach it at our department and we do it in the fire stations because you get that accountability that you will push yourself a little bit harder because there's people around you. Yeah. And one thing I've always said as well is when we're at work, you know, we're going to find ourselves in very uncomfortable situations mentally. Like you said, confined space, heights, you know, the heat of the damn bunker gear. And <laughs> you're, you know, and I don't mean, again, each to their own, but I found when I did my old bodybuilding style routines, you know, 15 years ago, you don't get that. But when you put yourself through some of these works, and it shouldn't be every day, you should have, you know, ebbs and flows of the intensity of your workouts. But on the Murph days, the Fran days, you know, those those more intense workouts, you really send yourself to a horrible place. And I think that's so important for a tactical athlete to experience that misery on a weekly basis so that when you are in a mass shooting, you know, uh, a horrendous fire, whatever it ends up being, that you are comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah, perfect. That's perfectly said. I mean, I, I agree 100%. That's the last thing you want to worry about is like, oh, can I physically do this? And that's, yeah, it's exactly, you're, it builds confidence in yourself. When you accomplish something so hard, so much like that, and you continue to do it on a daily basis or a weekly basis, you just have a, a sense of confidence within yourself and you're going to perform better on everything you do, whether it's your medical aid, your fire calls, whatever it is, you just, you give yourself more of a confidence in yourself. So what was it about you? Because I mean, I, I've watched some some Instagram videos, and you're basically cleaning what I deadlift, which is <laughs> which is <the> nauseating. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, on that path, what was it that made you so successful, specifically as a CrossFit Games athlete? Um, my again, my buddy uh, Calvin Davis, um, great athlete. Uh, we played basketball together when we were like little played baseball against each other. He's just a phenomenal athlete. He was a track guy, but he was, uh, he got into the lifting and he got super strong. And I was like, man, that's incredible. Like you can do a five thirty mile or a six minute mile and then still back squat like 450 pounds or still clean and jerk, you know, 365. And you're just like, holy cow. So I like, I really, my passion is like Olympic lifting and doing the heavy lifting. Um, and that's what I did when I go to the, you know, I call it the globo gym for the guys at work from the dodgeball uh, movie. <laughs> and, uh, 
you know, we tease those guys. We're like, hey, man, some people have show cars. Some people have hot rods. You can choose what you want, you know. <laughs> so there's all that that friendly bantering. But you still get to lift. You still get to like, oh, um, I'm going to do these heavy cleans. You still feel like you get that like strength component. But then you're now you're doing it with weights at the same time, getting the cardio into it also. And you're like, I just accomplished two things at the same time. And that's what people don't understand is they – you can do both at the same time and still accomplish the same thing and still get strong. Um, I haven't done bench press. I think we do it like once a year and we just did a max bench press and I'm like, all right, I'll try it out. And my bench press went up 10 pounds from five years ago and I hit 355. and I, I don't ever bench press. I do burpees and pushups. That's it. And so it just shows you like you can still maintain your strength. You can still have this and still be functional. Yeah. And I think the thing that people miss is, and I've seen this on fire scenes, not, not trying to toot my own horn at all, but it's just, I witnessed the, the transfer of that fitness is when you're on the fire ground, you, you have that guy that's strong as an ox, but you know, blows his wad within a few minutes. I'm never going to be the strongest person on the fire ground. I'm built like a toothpick, but 20 minutes in, I'm still able to do the same work. And I think that's very important for, for us, for a firefighter specifically is, it's great that you can, you know, force a door and three hits at the sledge, but can you still work 10 minutes later, you know, or, or that you can't make it, you know, to the floor where the fire is, or if you do, you're spent, you know? So I think that's, that's to me what really, what I found. And I started CrossFit about 12 years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, never, never going to be a competitive athlete, but I just was amazed how it carried over to you just, you had you were able to keep working. And that's a big thing for me is, you know, you don't need to be the fastest, you don't need to be the strongest, but, you know, there's there's a job to be done and it only stops when when the scene is done. Yes, you might cycle through rehab, but, you know, th- some of these events might last. I've had fires that lasted hours and hours and hours and no one's going to let you tap out and go to just throw a, a towel over your neck and <laughs> start playing with your phone. That's not how it works on the fire ground. I agree. It, it's that I just did a uh, article with men's health that comes out, I think next month. And that was the biggest thing I talked about. And what you just said was perfect. It's your recovery. How fast can you recover? Like you may have to hit that door five or six times versus the guy that does it three times, but he's going to be winded for about two minutes after where you're going to be winded for about 15 seconds and then you're pushing in. So that's, that's the important factor of our job. You don't have to be the strongest. You don't have to be the fastest. You just have to maintain and be able to recover fast. And that's where you want to be the best at. Absolutely. I just had uh, Chris Hinshaw on the show a few weeks ago, and uh, he was talking about his capacity wad. And he, he actually is a huge advocate for firefighters, and he loves training you know, our profession. He understands what we, what we do as far as movements. Um, but that was the big thing he talks about is, you know, if most of us are strong enough, most of us are fit enough, but it's that recovery thing. And, you know, and we, we, you know, think about the fire ground. Let's say you are going 12 floors up. So that's a big stair climb. And then you're going to stage, you're going to hook up the line. Then maybe you have to force the door. So it's more intensity than you're going to bring it down. So it is that, that high intensity, low intensity and the ability to recover, even though you're still moving, you're still having to work versus what we do in CrossFit a lot is, you know, one round and then just sit there with your, your ha- you know, your hands on your knees, which I'm totally guilty of, you know. <laughs> so I never thought about that way, but training the recovery is so, so important for what we do. Yeah. And that's a, a lot of it. And that's the way I program. I work for our guys. I program differently than I do when we're at the gym. Um, I still do similar stuff, but a lot of the stuff we do, I do like 
uh, every minute on the minute stuff. And then you rest for a minute and then you, but so you're hitting it hard. So you're spiking it, recovering, spiking and recovering. And you're, you're training your body to do that recovery where the guys think like, Oh, cool. I get to rest. But mentally it's actually training them to, to recognize what they do on the fire ground. So when they have to go 10 minutes straight on a workout, they're like, oh, God. But if I tell them, hey, we're going to do 10 minutes, but you're going to work a minute, rest a minute. And they think they get five minutes of rest, but they're not really resting. Their, their heart rate spikes so high because they did so so many reps so fast. And then they're, they're doing it. So they're doing essentially doing the same thing, but it's mentally how you trick them. Yeah. Now, I use a lot of um, sleds, sandbags, kettlebells, that kind of thing, yokes to train train my guys. What kind of tools do you like using for yours? Uh, the same thing. Um, a lot of times, a lot of guys that aren't familiar with CrossFit, they, they're scared of the Olympic lifts. So I will train them on Olympic lifting, but we do it very, very light. And what we try to do is we do a lot of shoulder work because in our, our business, it's all legs and shoulders. Um, so we do a lot of sandbag stuff where we might do a sandbag clean um, or like jogging uh, the parking lot with the sandbag. We'll do like box step ups with a sandbag. We just do a lot of the try to keep the low impact stuff out of it because obviously in, in the fire service, we're impacting all the time. So we don't need to increase that. Um, but we do a lot of sandbag work, a lot of kettlebell work with the shoulder stuff, a lot of box step ups. And then my guys hate it, but we do assault bike almost every day because that is the worst workout you can ever do. I hate that thing more than anything of the workouts, but that's why I do it because I hate it because it hurts so bad. Satan's chariot. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> they hate it. And I never tell them what we're doing at the end. So I always say, oh, we got these two little workouts. And then I always have a surprise one. And they know it. And it's always some type of assault bike where we're competing. And we do a competition for dinner. Like, hey, who's uh, who's clean? Who's doing the dishes? Hey, it's, we're all in. And it'll be three guys. And it's like, hey, how fast can we get to 200 calories on this assault bike with three guys alternating? And it, next thing you know, you're eight minutes in of assault bike and you're spiking, going, spiking, going, spiking, going. And you just made a friendly competition out of it. Love that. Love it. Yeah, I, I love working out with a partner too. Do the same amount of work, but just with someone, you know, yes. alternating. When you would be resting naturally, they're moving the bar and it just kind of moves you along. And we've done it before where an individual's done it alongside us and, and pacing wise, it ends up being exactly the same. But exactly. mentally, yep. it's so much more motivating. Yep, 100%. Now, what about breathing? Now, obviously, with you being an elite athlete, um, you know, I've, I've played with all kinds of breathing. Chris actually had an interesting thing because I've been talking about nose breathing a lot, which I love. But then he's like, well, in the higher intensity, you're almost putting the body in a panic state because it can't get the air. Um, what is your philosophy on on breathing when, when you're wearing a CBA? Uh, yeah, I try to I try to slow, like slow my breathing down. And that, that's the thing is the more you can relax your body, like you notice runners when you're watching them run, their cheeks are bouncing, like every single muscle in their body is just relaxed because when you tense up muscles, they need oxygen. So the, I tell people like, hey, the more relaxed you are, like even though you're breathing, your heart rate might be spiked at 60, you try to stay relaxed, try to get, like you said it perfect, like you wanna be uncomfortable, but comfortable. So you gotta get to that uncomfortable place, but relax your body where you're being comfortable. So when I breathe, I try to just, I try to take that big deep breath and then focus and relax by breathing. That's the thing is you focus and relax on your breathing, whether you're breathing through your nose or your mouth, but you have that relaxed breathing, your, your heart rate's going to slow. Your breathing's going to become more rhythmic and you're going to do that. You, I've learned that I ran cross country um, when I was younger and track and field. And that was my running coach always said that, like, you got to relax when you breathe. Even when you're sprinting, you've got to relax your number one priority, focus on your breathing. So when I run, I like to breathe through my nose. 
um, because that's the rhythm that I use when I'm doing CrossFit. I'm like tongues hanging out. I'm breathing out my mouth. I'm just trying to get air in, but I'm trying to stay relaxed when I do it. So I think however you do it, you just got to stay relaxed and get in that, that rhythm of breathing. Yeah, no, I actually do the same. I think there's a certain intensity where you can keep your mouth closed and it does keep that heart rate down. But yeah, after, after that certain point, then yeah, it's just, <laughs> I try and do in through the nose, out through the mouth, and then eventually it looks like some porn scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, survival mode. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well then transferring. So one thing we got in common, 5.11 sponsors the podcast now. Last uh, six months, I think it's been. Um, how did they come into your radar? Um, so through a friend of a friend, uh, they kind of mentioned my name and, uh, they saw me at a, like a competition that they were sponsoring. And I just started talking to, uh, one of the reps. And then after they, uh, um, saw an article done or not an article, but a video clip done by, uh, uh, channel four news. And so they reached out to me and asked me, Hey, uh, we'd like to tell your story of what you did and why you did and how, you know, fitness played a factor in that. And I was like, wow. So I, I met with uh, Eric over there, which was one of their PR and their camera guys. And just, we started talking and we kind of just hit it off. We, we both into the, the same stuff. And from there, it just, it branched off. Our department's very big in um, Instagram and uh, video stuff and getting the education out to the community. So we have them out all the time for some of our demo days. And basically the relationship is just built. And at that point, like I hadn't done the CrossFit games yet, but I made regionals. So they, they filmed our team and then I went individual and they like did the whole process of, they came out to a bunch of my trainings and diff different things and then followed me all the way to the road to the games, um, for the, my, the master's division. And then, the, I actually got an event win on first responder day out there. So, I mean, that was like, I knew that was going to be a good event for me because it's a yoke carry. It was like a 525 pound yoke carry with rope climbs and that rope climbs are like, for some reason, me being a bigger guy, I, I just enjoy climbing ropes and I can do legless and, um, different stuff. So I knew that was going to be, and it was a run. And for me, being a bigger guy running is I'd rather run all day long than rope. For some reason I suck at rowing <laughs> and it's just, it just taxes me cardio wise. For some reason, my legs start burning, but when I run, I can run all day long. So I knew that was going to be a good event and to pull out a win. Um, being the, the fittest ever in that event uh, and having it on a first responders day. It was just a cool thing to have 5.11 cover it and be a part of that and just show like guys, hey, this is why we do it. I don't do it for myself. I do it for the community. I do it for my family to show my kids why we stay physically fit and just to motivate others because I'm only as good as the guys on my crew and the rest of my department. And I, if I can lead by example and get guys more physically fit and keep them healthier, that that's why I do it. Just just for the the sake of others, not for myself. Yeah. Now, how old are you? I'm 37. Okay. All right. So you're not competing with Ronald T's then. He's a little older. <laughs> no. Right. Um. Yeah. So with 5.11, you know, I I came across them too. Um. Yeah. Eric and I were talking, and I was you know truly humbled when I started this podcast. I literally made a, an announcement on one of the episodes saying. You know, when this grows to a certain point, I'm going to look for sponsorship. I literally retired from the fire service to carry on this project. I mean, the, the days that I would be on shift and the days I come off like totally drained, you know, I could hear it in my voice in these interviews. I'm like, I want to travel more. Um, but I've made a promise that I was only going to have companies on here that I wholeheartedly believe in that I've used myself before. Um, and so when, when we actually finally got together, I was, you know, I was amazed how, how embedded they are in our community. They truly, truly care about 
the first responders, you know, and I, we wore their uniforms in Anaheim years ago. And my best friend was in their catalog back 10, 15, well, 11 years ago now. Um, so what is your kind of perspective on them? And then do you have any like favorite products that you love of theirs? Yeah, um, I agree. They're, they're, I think they're, the way they run their business, and I've been to the headquarters uh, down there in Irvine multiple. I was actually just down there today getting guys uh, some uniforms and boots because they're getting ready to start the academy. Their customer service is just incredible. And that's what I love. And every employee that works there, they're happy. And that's how you know, like, you're running a good environment. And uh, the CEO, like, I, he's just an awesome guy. And he just takes care of his employees. Their employees are happy to be there. They, you can work out during your lunch break. They set up a whole gym for them. They have a whole kitchen area. Um, they do different events for their employees. And it just makes it that. And, and when I've had issues with my gear, literally, you can take it down to the store or email the company and they'll send you a new one. They stand by their product. That's what makes them great and what they are. Their product's already great, but when there is an issue, they stand by it and they'll send you a new one out right away. Um, some of my favorite stuff, I, I love their tack plate carrier vest. Um, I wear that two to three times a week to work out in at work. Um, that's my active shooter vest. So I have a quick response vest and I have my plates in that and I can throw that on in a, a quick go and I'm, I'm out. So it's not only functional for my job, but it's also functional for training. And it's one of those things, like if ever anybody's ever worn a vest, like they can be like cumbersome where you can't lift your arms, you can't do anything. They, these vests are designed, they're narrow, they have the plate carrier and you can do anything in them. Um, that, that's probably one of my best, the things I like the most. Um, I like their rush bags, their new bags that just came out. Uh, I got uh, two of those in both different sizes and I use that as like my, uh, my work backpack. I keep my laptop in and I also have it as a functional backpack for all my cold weather gear. So they, they've, they just design, they listen to the community. I think that you said that and they just listen to who's actually wearing the product and they design it. I've gone down there and said, Hey, could you do this, this? And they, they change things and it's like, wow, that, that made it more functional or that. And they take, like you said, that they're, they're humble about their product because they want to provide the best of who the people that are actually using it. And it shows, I mean, you look at their, a multi-million dollar company with million followers on Instagram and that shows what they're doing and what they're about. Yeah. And I think even some of the ambassadors, if you got people like Tim Kennedy, you know, standing oh, yeah. by their product, that says a lot, yes. you know, I mean, every, every tactical arena has some incredible people standing there. And yeah, I went to Irvine and same thing. I was so amazed. Everyone was so friendly. I, I had some feedback on the Norris sneaker that they just um, released because my big thing for fire police is, you know, why are we wearing fucking diving boots on, on duty? We should be wearing <laughs> light. We're not going into, you know, Iraq. We're going into the streets of wherever where we have, you know, bunker gear if we need to go somewhere dangerous. But you got these people walking around these steel shank boots and just destroying their, their knees and their backs. So yeah, I mean, they're, they're absolutely listening to what people are saying. And this isn't a shameless plug. This is, I'm saying this because I talk about CBD. I talk about Doc Parsley sleep remedy. I talk about 511 because they're awesome. And if you're going to spend your money, spend them there. Yeah. hundred percent. And, and they're, and they're pretty inexpensive compared. I mean, they're middle of the line. And I think that's, that's what's great about it because there's some companies out there that charge an arm and a leg and you're looking at a canvas bag and I'm like, come on, guys, like really? Like this isn't like functional and you're trying to charge this because you're a military personnel and you've had this experience and that and it's like, come on, guys. Um, I, I just I, I stand by it. I wear their T-shirts to work out in. I wear that. And it's just it's it's functional. It's comfortable and, and they stand by their product. And I honestly I would pay even more 
for their product just because of their customer service. To me, that is a huge deal to me when you have good customer service and just friendly environment. Absolutely. All right. Well, one more thing before we go to some closing questions. Tell me about Live Rescue. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, through 511 and uh, one of the uh, girls that does all their PR stuff, they uh, got me in contact with uh, A&E and uh, Fox, actually. So they uh, there was two. There was kind of a spinoff. They did a different show, but we got uh, we picked it up with A&E, which uh, they do live PD. And then they started a spinoff of live PD and started doing live rescue. So um, I went back and they wanted me to be an expert commentator um, about a year ago. So I went back and filmed the pilot for it. Um, and basically, it's like live PD. They respond to calls all over the nation, and it's actually live. It's about a 15-minute delay just in case somebody says a bad word or, you know, something happens. That would never but happen on the live. scene, surely. <laughs> yeah, and then we are in the studio. We try to comment on it uh, with Matt Wiseman, who's the, uh, the head host uh, uh, that does Ninja Warrior, and basically educate the public on what they're seeing, why they're doing it, why they're happening. But it gives a chance for the normal person that – doesn't ever get to be involved in this to be like right there firsthand witnessing what's going on. So I told him, I said, Hey, our department ran 150,000 calls last year. We have a couple of stations out of the busiest in the nation where we'll run 42 plus calls out of the station on a daily basis. You got to come out to us. And it's like, they hear that from everybody like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, no, just, just come out, you know? And I said, look at our Instagram. And so they were like, wow, like, okay, yeah, let's try this out. So we got the contract because you got to have like a pretty good um, insurance retainer on it and different stuff. But they, the a &E is very, very professional. They have their ducks in a row. They had everything laid out um, and ready to go. So we started about 16 weeks ago, started doing live rescue where they follow us uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday um, for about eight hours a day to get uh, pre-recorded stuff different cool packages of fires, anything like that. And then Monday we go live at uh, five o'clock until eight 30 and we're live, they're live riding around with us and we're just jumping calls and running any fires. And it's been really good PR for our department. Um, and we've gotten a lot of good stuff. It's a busy town. I mean, so, I mean, it's the normal stuff because people are like, Oh yeah. How long do they record for? I'm like all the stuff that they're showing, except for a couple, like, I think they've showed like pack, they call them packages. They showed about five or six different packages. Everything they've shown has been live. We had a, a big old wildland fire where homes were threatened, homes burned down, and like, and they were there. It was live, and the people are just blown away. I'm like, this is what we do on a normal basis. We're just San Bernardino is a, it's a fun place to work. It's just a busy, busy town. It's it, there's it's low income, so you get you know, where you have different type of clientele that come in with, uh, you know, gangbangers and stuff like that. So you get the assaults, you get the shootings, you get the stabbings. Um, but we're surrounded by wildland also. So we get the wildland fires and it's an older town. So then we have the older structures. So we get a lot of structure fires as well. So we get a, a good majority of everything. We've had some of the biggest fires in the nation's history and start in our town, the old fire and the panorama fire. Uh, we had a train derailment um, back in the uh, early 90s. And it basically the train came down Cajon Pass and derailed because it lost its brakes and took out a whole city block. And then five days later, because that train fell on a gas pipe, it actually ruptured the gas pipe underlying. And then we had a gas explosion that took out another block. So, I mean, we've had <laughs> between December 2nd having terror attacks, uh, these big wildland fires, train derailments. We had a mudslide after the old fire that took out 14 people in a uh, canyon at a uh, camp on Christmas Day. 
So, I mean, we have like it, the, the San Bernardino County is just an incredible um, county to work in because we have we have the river. We cover by the Colorado River and we have riverboats. And next thing you know, you can be in the mountains on a snowcat uh, or you can be down in the city on structure fires or you can be on an active shooter or you can be on a hazmat. It's just a it's a fun place to work when you really want to do the job as a fireman. You get into it. It's a cool place to work. And Live Rescue has been able to cover that. Brilliant. Now, just a side note, do you know Marcel Medina or Kevin Stewart? They were both CDF. But I think they were based around San Bernardino. Uh, no, we don't We don't work too much with uh, Cal Fire. Um, uh, you know, we, we see them, but it, you, I probably if like you had a face, I could see a face, but I don't. Uh, names are hard, you know, sometimes with the fire different when you work for a different agency. Gotcha. Yeah, I know they moved to Anaheim about 10, 12 years ago, but uh, okay. I know they were there before. Actually, more than that, probably 15 years ago. All right. Um, so turn, moving to some closing questions. The first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be about what we've discussed today or something completely different. Ooh, a book. Um, I, there's a book that I, it's probably one of my favorite books. Um, it's called the all blacks and it talks about the uh, rugby football team and why they were so successful and the most winningest professional team ever. Um, not just rugby, but most winningest team ever. And it talks about their philosophy and what, what they do to accomplish it. And the, the biggest thing I, I got from uh, that book and I tell all our guys is like, here, these guys are professional athletes making really good money. And their whole thing is they call it sweeping the floor. They don't allow anybody to clean out their locker room. So all the grass, all the dirt, everything that they have, their, their players take care of that. That's their job, their home, and they, they call it sweeping the floor. And their job is to maintain that. And so you, it really makes you think about, hey, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget the little things. And you never, you're never too good to clean a toilet. You're never too good to clean um, the floor and sweep the floor. But that builds the camaraderie between the, the team. And when you have that power of team camaraderie and having their backs, you can be unstoppable. And it, you see it in, in sports all the time. They might not have the best players, the best team, but when they're playing together as a team, there's no stopping them. You get that momentum. So I think it's a good book and it talks about all those philosophies of leadership and being humble and just knowing, you know, knowing your place and being humble. It, it's just awesome. Brilliant. You know, someone else recommended that once. That's my cue now to, to put that on my Amazon list because I, I watched the All Blacks for years, Joan Alumnu and all those guys. And yeah, they were just a, a force. <laughs> Remember like yeah. poor, poor English players just <laughs> being flailed from these giant Samoan dudes just crushing our team. <laughs> incredible. I know. And I didn't really know about it. You know, one of the, uh, the Cal Baptist, a basketball coach, Rick Croy, um, recommended it to me. And I he uh so i went and bought it like the next day and i could not put it down i was just like oh my gosh this is just because a lot of the same philosophies i think and the way they word it it's like you can put it into words now and articulate it so when i use it for a lot of the quotes and stuff for my teaching when i teach and have our new probationary employees um so it's just it just articulates that stuff really really well and it shows the success of it beautiful all right so same question but a movie any movies you love oh movies um well, probably comedy would be uh, Wedding Crashers. That that movie cracks me up every single time, and I know like every single word to it. We watch it at the fire station all the time. Or uh, Step Brothers. Step Brothers is oh uh, that that movie just because there's so many good one-liners in there. You know about hey, why are you so sweaty? I was watching Cops. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and then uh, probably for like motivational. Uh, 
my one of my favorite uh, movies for like sport movies is For Love of the Game with uh, Kevin Costner. And it just uh, just a great all around movie of like no, knowing, you know, where you're at, where you come from and what, what's important. Beautiful. Now, what about documentaries? Any any you've seen that you've been uh, raving about? Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, well, you mentioned you mentioned the one about the, the survivor of the, the shooting. Do you remember what that one was called? Uh, yeah, that was just a local one that uh, I um, it was a uh, life in the line. And it was done locally at one of the uh, the local uh, radio stations. And I actually put it on, uh, I think, actually on Apple or Amazon. Um, but that was that was done pretty well locally by one of the local networks. Ah, documentaries are hard. Um, I don't watch too many documentaries. I've seen like a couple of the uh, the McDonald's one that we watched the other day. Um, that supersized me or the supersized me. I have right. never seen that. We watched that at work the other day and I was like, Oh my gosh, well, I couldn't finish it. Cause I was just getting like, like all nauseated by this guy and how much weight he put on. I'm like, you're going to die. Uh, we, I like watching a lot of the, uh, the drug cartel ones on the whole, like a lot of things you don't know. You're just as a normal civilian, like you're just like, Oh yeah, they, they have drugs and how much, work and intel and how much work and stuff they stop behind the scenes that just we're just blinded to as americans um i, I like some of those those are pretty uh pretty interesting yeah i remember that i think there was another documentary made where some dude lived on mcdonald's and was absolutely fine but i don't know i mean just common sense knowing what most people in the sports world know about nutrition there's no way in hell you can eat big, big mac and fries for a month and not <laughs> be spiraling yes. downward rapidly i did watch one recently i forget the name of it it was uh on jerry rice it was on wayne gretzky and they talked about uh their success and why they were successful and it was the like talked about the mental aspect of what they were doing they talked about how they weren't the biggest they weren't the smallest or the uh fastest uh but their work ethic that's what made them successful and i thought that was just crazy and they go into the they talking about the parents and how crazy parents are these days and getting your kids in at like age six and you're you're going to play only baseball and you're going to play travel and you're not going to make it well by the time they're 13 or 14 they're burned out and they just talk about letting kids be kids like they learn and they're not going to peak until they're in their you know 14 15 16 in high school let them play every single sport they can and just let them have fun that, that's our whole job. They learn their movements. They learn body by playing different sports, by going out, riding your bike and building a jump and jumping or by playing wiffle ball or doing whatever. But you got to let kids be kids. They don't need to master their sport at the age of eight years old. I thought that was a really cool thing. I watched that on the plane actually coming back from New York. I'm going to have to watch that. I've talked about that with a few people being on here, you know, about the most successful athletes were usually multi-sport athletes and the ones yep. that blow out their shoulders and knees are the ones, like you said, the kids that were just drilled over and over and over again and had complete imbalance. Yeah. Jerry Rice talks about it and he was like, I didn't play sports or anything growing up and I was in my freshman year of high school and I got in trouble and I had to run to get away. And he saw me juke, jump over a fence really fast, and the coach basically caught me around the corner because he was smart, and he just walked around the corner because he knew where I was going. And he caught me and says, hey, we can go one way or the other way, and you're either going to join the football team and be a running back for me, or you're going to be in trouble. So what do you want to do? So he's like, well, I guess I'm going to join football. And that's how he got into football. That is crazy. I didn't know that story. 
So he talks about like stories like that. And it's like, you know, like different things that happen. It's, it's pretty cool like to hear. And I paraphrased a lot of that um, story, but I, I just remember like, wow, you know, he didn't play it six years old playing pop Warner, like doing all this stuff and like how, you know, the way the parents are, they got to do this. They got to do that. And it's, it's most of the dads living vicariously through their kids because they want them to be better than they were. And it's like, you got to sit back and just let the kids have fun. It's, it's rec sports, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of uncle Rico's out there. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's another great movie. Oh, I love that one. All right. So next question. Um, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions? Oh, uh, yeah, actually, uh, well, he's a uh, chief Walker now. Um, he was actually our Lieutenant, during the uh, time of the terror attacks and uh, his success, he's been on a lot of critical incidents and uh, he teach a lot, a lot on leadership. And he's uh, he's one of my mentors that I really look up to that I still talk to on a daily basis. Uh, but uh, yeah, Chief Walker, he is phenomenal when it comes to motivating his guys um, to understanding the mindset of how officers think and work and how to combat that stuff. And he was one of the biggest reasons we were successful that day because of his leadership skills that day and what he knew from both the fire department side and the law enforcement side. Brilliant. All right. Then last question before we talk about where we can find you. What do you do to decompress? Um, <laughs> well, I, I tend to work out a lot. Um, I try to get off in the mornings and then the days I go and I decompress. But uh, for me, honestly, I... If when I'm not working out to decompress, um, I enjoy spending just time with my wife. Um, grab a glass of wine. I've been I've been really into whiskey lately. For some reason, like having a good uh, old fashioned or just whiskey on the rocks, and just I like sitting outside, um, sitting by the fire and just just relaxing. That, that that's my my decompression. I don't watch TV. Pretty rare. Um, but we'll sit outside and uh, watch the kids play. I'll sit out on the front porch where they're riding their bikes and have a cocktail. And just uh, that's my decompression time. Brilliant. All right. Well, then, if people want to reach out to you online or learn more about you, where are the best places? Um, you can always email me, uh, my department email. Um, I, I'm, I always answer guys to that, which is uh, rstarling at sbcfire.org. Or you can reach me on Instagram, which it's uh, tristarling5 is my Instagram handle. And uh, I answer a lot of uh, questions on there and guide people in the right direction. Uh, we're always willing to give out our policies and procedures for our, our department and what we're working on to help share, to uh, not reinvent the wheel. Because I know a lot of departments, you know, they don't know where to go or where to start. And I can kind of guide them in the right direction and get them, you know, started in what's best for their departments. Because... What's best for our department may not be best for your department because you guys, every department has different target hazards. So, but I can help guide you in the right direction and where to go and who to talk to. Beautiful. All right. Well, Ryan, I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, your your story is amazing. Being very candid and you know transparent about the event, which uh, you know I say this to a lot of guests, you know, reliving this, even if it didn't seem that you know traumatic at the time, is still you know playing that movie in your mind again. But like you said. This is an opportunity for people to learn from all these, you know, horrendous events and hoping that we can remember that when, you know, we're either putting uh, policies in, in place or on the actual scene itself. So I just want to thank you so much for taking almost two hours to do this great interview. 
Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's, it's great for me just to be on here, just to be able to reach out and have this avenue to reach out to multiple people. So thank you for what you do.